And we're going to continue uh, part two. I try not to uh, split these up, but uh, last week, being conscious of our membership meeting at the end, I uh, just did more of an introduction last week. And uh, so we're going to continue part two. We're in a series, as you see on the graphic, called Holy Habits. And uh, sometimes they're referred to as spiritual disciplines. Uh, the scripture, it's on your bulletin, and we'll read it on the screen, is from uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4. And Paul the Apostle writes in chapter 4, 7, and 8, says, Do not waste time. This is from the New Living Translation. Do not waste time arguing over godless ideas or old wives' tales. And he said, instead, train or discipline. Remember, that's the word from the Greek that uh, we get the word gymnasium, which has to do with working out. It shows effort. Train yourself or discipline yourself to be godly. Verse 8, physical training is good, right? Physical training is good. All could use more physical training. But training for what? Godliness is much better. And this is what's so cool promising benefits in this life and the life to come. Very few things do you get the benefits of here and the future. Right now counts forever. And so we're uh, looking, we've looked at Bible intake. That was the first one, first one that we did. And uh, we looked at uh, prayer and we looked at stewardship of life. We talked about time and money and our discipline in those areas. And this morning, we're going to continue part two uh, in looking at worship, talking about worship. And this is a continuation from last week. A lot of things were said when we introduced that. And of course, all of our teachings are online. So you can go to our website, hisgrace.com and uh, find those. By the way, if you're an iTunes person, you can uh, do the podcast and find Grace Church Lakeland and subscribe that way, and that way they're put in your uh, podcast app um, every, every time that they're, uh, every week. But uh, worshiping as a spiritual discipline, and we're not really going to talk so much about uh, the public worship, the gathering. That's what we're doing. That's, as Austin said, we call, that's what we refer to as celebration. We're celebrating Christ as one of our uh, three C's in our, in our uh, vision statement. But uh, I really want to focus again on uh, worship as a personal matter, as a, as, a, as a discipline, as a habit that we should be engaged in, not just what we do corporately and publicly, but what we do personally. Uh, you know, worship in the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, it's all through the Word of God. Worship is a theme. And again, you cannot worship God if you do not know God. If uh, worshiping God is encountering God, and you've never had an encounter where you have a relationship with Him through His Son, Jesus Christ, then you cannot worship Him. A lot of people know about God, have a lot of opinions about God, a lot of theories, a lot of religious uh, ideologies but uh, we're not here just to know about him, but uh, he calls us to know him in relationship. And you got you to gotta have knowledge, right? Knowledge is important. But, but again, the knowledge uh, scripturally is to build our relationship. So when we talk about worship, we're talking about a relationship with our creator. God created us in the very beginning. He created humankind uh, to have relationship. He didn't create humans, uh, Adam and Eve, the first man and first woman. He did not create them because he was lonely. How many of you know God is not lonely? There is pure satisfaction in the triune Godhead, all right? He is not lonely, and he didn't need some friends, so he made Adam and Eve, all right? But he desires relationship. He desires, as he created uh, man and woman, he desired to uh, make us in his image. And so worship really fundamentally, and this is just a little bit of something I said last week, is our response to God, what God's revelation, not the book of Revelation, but whom God has revealed himself, it's our response to who he is and what he has done. Today we uh, took of the Lord's table, even though it wasn't a literal table, we for communion, uh, but that was a response of worship to what God has done in Christ. Do this in remembrance of me, Jesus told his disciples. Worship is derived from the word, the Saxon word, that means worthship, to give worth. We're giving, when we worship, we're exalting 
God's worth. It doesn't mean he's less worthy if we don't do it. We're just saying, you are worthy. Thou art worthy. You, we, are, we are speaking of his worthship when we worship God. The more we focus on God and understand, we appreciate who he is by his character. Just like we can uh, admire a sunset or a breathtaking mountaintop or the ocean. Where I'm an ocean guy. Um, and that, ex- that evokes uh, a spontaneous response. You go out on the you know, clear water and you're out there looking at that ocean on a beautiful sunset and there's just something that you're just, you just, I mean, you're just moved by that. Well, we should have a more so when we encounter and know God, that we should have that same response of what a wonderful God uh, he is in giving him worth. So this morning as we pick that back up from last week, there's three things that we want to look at in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. And again, this is, uh, these are a little more topical, uh, and uh, you know, we've, in the past, we've gone through books of the Bible, but just uh, at the beginning of the year, I thought this was a, uh, a good reminder, if not for you, for me, uh, of where we need to just uh, continue in developing these key habits or disciplines in growing in godliness. So this morning, as we look at worship, we're going to first of all look at that uh, genuine worship is pointed pointed. What I mean by pointed is that worship is directed somewhere. It's not just a general, you know, worship. Uh, we worship nature. We worship. No, worship, biblically speaking, is directed. It's pointing. When we worship, we're pointing to God. It's, 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 uh, it's not about technique or theological styles or music. Some people get caught up and think worship is just has to do with what kind of music you play. Well, that's a component of it, but we're talking about that worship fundamentally, uh, could say it this way, is theological in nature. Now, sometimes people hear the word theology and they check out, oh, I don't want theology, just give me Jesus. Well, your theology will determine what kind of Jesus you have, all right? So theology is what you believe about God. And I believe this, that those who know him best worship him the most. Um, when, when a person's life has been transformed by the gospel, it not only changes who you are in, in your position and your identity, but because when you reflect upon amazing grace, how sweet the sound, John Newton wrote that uh, wonderful hymn, A Former Slave Trader, and he said, if I've been there 10,000 years, I will never exhaust singing about the amazing grace of God. The problem is, Amazing grace isn't really amazing anymore. It's kind of ho-hum. We're daydreaming. We're thinking about other things. How do you know that? Because I do it. You do it too, right? So we need to say, God, help me to keep grace amazing, that I'm not just focused on the act, but God, that worship is pointed. Uh, I think I read this last week. It's worth reading again. A.W. Tozer, great writer. And you know, a lot of times when I give you quotes or it's not trying to show you, oh, I read this or read that. Hopefully, you write it down and you think, hey, I need to read that guy. You know, I want to I expand my uh, understanding about God and, and, and learn some things. And A.W. Tozer, T-O-Z-E-R, is a great uh, author who's with the Lord now. But he says this in his book called Knowledge of the Holy. Uh, he says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. We think about God, what comes to our mind when we think about God, that really defines who we are. It's the most important thing about us. It is impossible to worship him if you do not know him. And so in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, we're just going to pick up some things here where we see this heavenly uh, audience, um, and we see this group of what, elders and angels and this massive audience, um, and it, it really gives us some insight of worship and how they are responding. Remember, worship is about knowing God and responding to what we know, okay? So here we see some things in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, and I hope you brought your Bibles or at least have it on the phone or your, your whatever it is device you have, and uh, we'll put some things on the screen to kind of move us along. But I want you to notice some things and we're talking about that, the, that genuine worship is pointed. It's directed at God. So we see how what they had to think and say about God 
uh, a few things, uh, four things, just here in these few verses. First of all, uh, notice that they uh, exalted the holiness of God. God is holy. God is holy. Look at Revelation uh, 4, verses 6 through 8. And uh, pick, it up, pick it up in verse 6. And before the throne. Now, remember, if we just pause there. Remember, this is John the Apostle. Remember, there was 12 apostles, okay? Uh, John, history tells us, is the last apostle. All of them, of course, we'll put Judas aside here for his treason. But uh, the other apostles, uh, history tells us that they were all martyred or killed because of their faith. John the Apostle is, on, is in prison, more or less. He's on the island of Patmos in exile. There's some debate of whether he died of old age or he was executed, but essentially he is there on this island, and in chapter 1 of the book of Revelation, he has this encounter with Jesus Christ, all right? So the book of Revelation, maybe your Bible's the heading, it says the revelation of John. No, 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 no. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not about John, it's about Jesus Christ. So in chapter 1, we see this, this uh, encounter with the living Christ, and John is just kind of there listening and writing these things down. In chapters 2 and 3, that's the seven churches uh, of Asia Minor, today modern Turkey, uh, and that, that's dealing with that of those chapters. So when we come to chapter 4, the scene changes from chapter 2 and 3 here on earth, and now, according to chapter 4, uh, we're up in heaven, or John is in heaven at least, where he's continuing to see this revelation unfold. So that's just a little context. All right, let's read. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass. John is recording this, seeing this, like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. Some interpret that as representative of the four Gospels. Again, another time, another sermon. Verse 8, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings. Does that remind you of something in the Old Testament? Isaiah 6, okay? And the four living creatures, each of them had six wings, are full of eyes all around and within day and night. Look at this, they never cease, they never cease to say what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is to come. Anytime you see repetition in the Bible, that should cue you that this is really a big deal. Remember Jesus said, truly, truly, or old King James said, verily, verily, which really in the Greek is amen, amen. At the beginning, he's affirming his own statements. Why? Because he has the authority to do that. Hello, right? And so, when anytime you see something repeated, re repetition, it's kind of bold print above the fold, neon lights. Pay attention. This is a big deal. So, what does that tell you about the holiness of God? It's a big deal. God is never referred to as love, 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 mercy, mercy, mercy. But the holiness of God. If you could say, what is the most essential or important, and I don't even like those words, attribute, but everything flows from his holiness, his separateness. What are they saying about God? That he is holy. He is set apart. He is not like us. Sometimes that's referred to as that he is transcendent. He is pure. He is separate from his creation. So this worship, they're worshiping a God who is holy. The holiness of God. That's an important thing for us to keep in mind when we think about worship. Notice, secondly, in verse 8, they worship a God who is sovereign. Worship a God who is sovereign. Verse 8, it says that uh, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the Almighty, the Lord God Almighty, His sovereignty. This, this worship that is going on in the heavens, which we should kind of pay attention to, is this hymn of praise. They're recognizing God's rulership, his sovereignty over all creation. There is nothing, there is nothing outside his dominion. Do you realize that? Uh, theologian R.C. Sproul, I love this, 
statement that he made, and I have uh, the quote on the screen. He says this. He says, if God is the creator of the entire universe, then it must follow that he is the Lord over the whole universe. No part of the world is outside of his lordship. That means no part of my life must be outside of his lordship. God does not rule, listen to this, God does not rule by the consent of his subjects, but by his sovereign authority. His reign extends over me whether I vote for him or not. There is not one piece of cosmic dust that is outside the scope of God's sovereign providence. That's God, okay? Thirdly, we see that they're worshiping a God who's not only holy and sovereign, but who is eternal, who is eternal. Holy, verse 8 again, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty. Look at this, who was and is and is to come. He is eternal. That means there's never, he's never had a beginning. He's eternal. He has always been. He does not change. He is as he was. He will always be as he is. Our God is eternal. He doesn't have a bad day. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's eternal. Does that blow your mind? It should. It should blow our little peanut brain minds because we're talking about God. You say, well, I can't figure it out. Listen, if you can figure it out, you'd be God. We're talking about God. It'd be like me communicating my attributes to an anthill, which we seem to have in abundance around here in Florida, right? And me just on my knees telling them, hey, I'm a really nice guy. Let me tell you about my family. I mean, it's so beyond our creativeness, those little ants in that ant pile, and who I am as a human being. Think about what it is infinitely to understand this eternal, holy, sovereign God. Why are we saying these things? One, because it's in the Bible. But secondly, it should be the, the engine that motivates your worship, not how good the worship team did today. If you're in here kind of, eh, you know, it's worth it. They didn't sing my favorite songs. It was too loud. It wasn't loud enough. Blah, 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 blah. Right? We do that, don't we? You should come in here so full of who God is, it doesn't matter if they're up here with a banjo. All right, not a banjo. I'm not sure that's even humanly possible. Don't anybody get any ideas here? Those of you who read theology, this is talking about the aseity of God. That means that God is self-existent. The Word of God, He is self-existent. Uh, we talk about the immutability of God. That means He is unchangeable. Unchangeable. Those aren't hard words. We talk about mutation. Mutation means change. He is immutable. He is non-changing. He is not evolving. Okay? He is the eternal God. But also, he is a God who is worthy. Look at Revelation, again, chapter 4, verse 9. He is not only holy, sovereign, eternal, but he is worthy. Revelation 4, verse 9, and whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns down, or they cast their crowns before the throne saying, verse 11, what? Worthy, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory, honor, and power, for you created all things. And look at this. You have a hard time with a big God. And by your will, by your will, not their will, by your will, they existed and were created. He alone is worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our worship. Paul had to remind those, uh, those pagans in uh, Athens, we won't turn to it, uh, in Acts chapter 17. Remember, he uh, is meeting with these group of pagans on the Areopagus or Mars Hill, I think the old King James says, and they're kind of the philosophizer, philosophizing, whatever that is. Um, and um, 
I always like to say it was the Oprah Winfrey show of its day. They just kind of gathered and talked about whatever, spirituality. There weren't any absolutes or whatever. And here Paul comes in, remember? He comes in, he says, hey, I've been, I've been waiting for my friends to arrive in Athens, and I took a little tour, and I see you guys are really religious. In fact, you're so religious, you've got an altar to everything. And church history tells us they had millions of idols and altars and stuff there in Athens. But he says, just in case you blow it, you want to make sure you've covered all your tracks, you've got an altar, an idol to the unknown God. Remember that? Acts 70. He said, hey, this is a good day because I'm here to tell you who that unknown God is. Now, you know what he began with? He didn't begin with the, the scriptures. If you read at the beginning of Acts chapter 17, he went into the Jewish synagogue, and it says, and he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Why? Because they understood that. He's with a bunch of pagans who don't know the scriptures, could care less. You know where he begins? He begins with God as creator, this God who made you and made everything whether you vote for him or not, you're accountable to him because he made you and he made everything. He, in other words, he was saying he alone is worthy. He alone is worthy. Now, let's personalize a little bit. That means that here is one that they are worshiping in this massive audience and revelation that I can entrust with my life. You see how God-centered this is in Revelation chapter 4? You see how the focus is all wrapped up in who God is? What a difference a lot of our so-called modern worship is not focused on God. It's all man-centered. What, what I've done, who I am, what you can do for me. Uh, this is a, a God who is worthy of our worship, and he even gets more pointed in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. And it says about the Lamb, it says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy, worthy, here it is again, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Now again, there's a lot of symbolic language we can't get into here. I just want you to focus on um, our, our, our worthiness here of God. Uh, it says, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, obviously talking about Christ, and by your blood you ransomed people. That means Jesus actually accomplished something on the cross. It wasn't a fool's errand. He actually secured the salvation of those that the Father had given him in eternity past. You actually ransomed people for God. You accomplished something from where? Every tribe and language and people and nation. Something actually was accomplished on the cross. It wasn't potential. It was actual salvation that Jesus secured there. Jesus is worthy of our worship. It is because of what he has done. Again, the more you know about him, the more you are driven to worship him. Would you agree? Would you? I, and you don't have to, but I mean, the more I have grown in whatever years, maybe 40, I don't know. I can't do math on the fly up here. Uh, <laughs> my wife will tell you that. I'm not going to tell that story, all right? <clears throat> now I don't even know what I was going to say, all right? It must not have been important. Those who know him best worship him most. What I started to say is since the Lord saved me at 10 years of age, uh, 48 years ago, uh, First Baptist Church, Corpus Christi, Texas, Dr. Vernon O. Elmore asked a bunch of kids at a vacation Bible school the last day, shared the gospel. If anybody wants to receive Jesus in their heart, stay afterwards. Everybody went to their class, and I was one, I don't know, a handful. I don't remember how many were there. Did I really understand everything? No, but I just knew that I wanted what he was talking about. And God saved me that day. I really believe that. And I have grown, hopefully like you have, in who and my understanding of God. And that has not only grown in my knowledge and understanding, but in my worship of this God. It should expand. Theology, if we could say that word again, shouldn't just be that you got a lot of books and notes and, a lot, and you don't know how to have good arguments. I know people have a lot of good theology, but they have a cold, dead heart. Remember the church at Laodicea in Revelation uh, chapter 3? They did all their good works. They had every T cross and every I dotted, I, uh, I dotted. But you know what? They had abandoned their first love. 
And so if theology and the study of God does not motivate passion to worship Him, something's wrong. And a lot of times it's not the theology, it's our, it's our hearts that are not connecting with this God that we want to know so much about. So not only is worship pointed, it's directed, but notice it is personal. 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 Uh, Romans 12.1. Now this is obviously out of Revelation, but Paul said, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So, so worship isn't just the theoretical Okay, it involves in who we are and, and what I, who I am, actual platitudes. I'm not detached. I'm personally involved here, and we see this also in Revelation four and five. Remember, uh, in ver- chapter four, verse one, uh, to be on the screen. Remember where this is taking place. It is taking place where on earth or in heaven, right? John is having this vision. He's now up in heaven. End of chapter three. He's seeing this vision, what's going on on the earth, but now he's in the heavens, and all that's taking place, he's, he's seeing all this going on here. And so uh, he said, after this, uh, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And when you go up there in verse 4, you see, and the, around the throne were 24 thrones, Okay, around the throne of Christ, around the authority of the Godhead, around this throne are 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments. White garments are symbolic of righteousness, symbolic of holiness. You see, as believers, we enter into his presence not based on our own holiness, not based on our own purity, but we enter into his presence covered, as we sang, you with me? Covered by his grace, covered by his righteousness. You see, the problem with religion is me trying to earn my way to be made right or acceptable to God. You can't do that. That is impossible. You are made pure, by the finished work of Jesus Christ. The only basis of being accepted in his presence, only basis of being clean and pure in his presence is through the free grace and righteousness of Jesus Christ. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him, God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, look at this, so that in him, say in him, in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. How can I worship God in this holiness? Through Christ. Through the finished work of Christ that I receive freely. Paul hit it on the head in in Philippians 3. Remember he said, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, Look that up in the Greek sometime. I can't repeat it here. But if you want to know how strong Paul considered that, I heard Elliot laugh over there because he knows Greek and he knows what I'm talking about. It's a very strong word. I count it all as rubbish, garbage, in order that I might gain Christ. Verse 9, and look at this. We're talking about the righteousness, the purity that I only receive in Christ to enter into his presence to worship him, that I may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through what? Faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. We are pure because of Christ. And this doesn't motivate pride. You know what this should produce in us? It should produce what we see in Revelation 4.10. It should produce humility. What did they do? The 24 elders fall down before him. Look at chapter 5, verse 8. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders did what? Fell down before the the Lamb. Verse 14 of chapter 5. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down 
and worship. Uh, there's, there's some words that are uh, connected with worship that speaks of the joy of being prostrate before the Lord, of falling down on our faces before him. Do you see the humility of how their actions, it's, it's, it's a humility before this God that they recognize him. The more you know him, the, those who know him best worship him the most. Unless you know him, you do not see how this response of his grace should produce humility. This isn't a pride thing. People think, oh, you know, some people say, oh, you Christians are so sure. That's very prideful. No, I'm sure because Jesus' finished work was sure. I have no doubts in what he did. Oh, I have a lot of doubts in me. But when I start to doubt... Prone to wonder, as the old hymn says, come thou fountain of every blessing. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. When that starts to happen, and I think, well, you know, maybe I'm not a Christian today. Maybe he doesn't love me. Listen, you know where my refuge is? My refuge is to retreat to the cross. My refuge is to fall into the cross and the surety of what Jesus Christ has done. My assurance is what Christ has done, not how well I perform today. And that produces a humility. God, I am thankful for your grace. I'm thankful for your mercy. And in verse 10, we see an act of surrender. Notice again, we're just going through these personal responses. We're not talking about technique. We're just showing heart, response, attitude towards God and who he is. Verse 10, it says, The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever and ever. Look at this. And what did they do with their crowns? And can't get into crowns. But the Bible talks about believers receiving war rewards on the day of judgment. We are not judged because of our sin. Guess where that was judged? At the cross. And that really, this is just a piece of aesthetic. You know, I'm not, I'm just saying the cross. We're not going to worry about being judged in that final day for our sins. Why? Because my sins were judged already in Christ, past tense. But there is a judgment the believer will undergo and there will be rewards for the works that we have done as believers. For you have been saved by grace, right? That is not of yourselves. You are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus under good works, which he prepared before, beforehand, before he even, before you even existed, he already had a plan for your life and the works that you should walk in them. And there's this surrender. What do they do with these crowns that represent some type of reward? They cast their throne, their crowns, their crowns before the throne. I said, we surrender even, even what you've given us in this humility and the surrender, as if they're saying everything that we have, everything we possess, our possession, our position, we lay it all at the feet of God. We surrender to you. You see what you see here? Again, not talking about techniques. All right, you worship adoration, confess, you know, here's a little order of how to go through worship. We're not talking about that. We're just talking about a heart because Jesus says where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be. And if your treasure is in him, guess what? That's where your heart, and it will be seen. God, help me to treasure you more. And what does that produce? Revelation 5, 9 Talking about the personalness. This is action. It produces praise. It says they sang a new song. They praised God. They said, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, Jesus, by your blood. You ransomed the people from every tribe, language, and nation. They sang. What did they do? They sang a new song. They gave praise to God. Not only is this worship that we need to be more habitual in pursuing is God-centered and pointed. It's personal. It's something I, I do. I respond. But it, let's give some practical thoughts here. It's something we actually do. In Revelation 5, talking about some practicality, verse 11 and 12, John says, Then I looked and I heard around the throne... And the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. The SV study Bible says uh, hundreds of millions. 
Anytime you see the Bible use a number, it just, it's a massive, it's a lot of people. Listen to what the elders, these elders, and by the way, we don't really know for sure these 24 elders, uh, but they are representative above their peers in some type of authority because they're, apparent, they're obviously, because it says, on thrones around the throne. And the 24, uh, most people consider, well, they're 12 representing the 12 tribes of Israel and 12 representing the 12 apostles as the 24. But I'll leave that to other people another time. But look at verse 12. These elders, what do they they say? Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, and you could take you could take these these attributes to receive power. You could just talk about praise God for His power, and wealth, and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. Do you see? They're actually they're actually walking through these attributes and these words of praise as they give God practical worship. They're actually cultivating and doing this in heaven. Listen, heaven won't be like anything we've ever experienced here. And if your concept of heaven is an eternal gospel music concert, my friend, well, I probably shouldn't have gone there. Listen, the worship will be perfect. It will be perfect. Why? Because Jesus is perfect. He will be at the center of our worship. It will be perfect, and we will be perfect. Why? Because our perfection is in him, and our worship will be perfected forever and ever in him. And I don't understand it, but I know that for whatever, we will be eternally satisfied. We will never get tired of the presence of Christ. Some of you are looking at your watches and looking at the clock. And I'm sorry to say, that's just the way life is on earth. You got to listen to somebody like me ramble on until I finish, all right? But heaven, there won't be checking watches or clocks. Why? Because it'll just be in the presence of Christ. Can't we understand that? I don't think we can totally grasp it. But guess what? By his grace, I'm going to experience it. I'm going to experience it, and I look forward to experiencing it. Let me give you real, some practical things. And these are just some random things that I, again, I, I really didn't want to give you, okay, you do this for 10 minutes. And then you do this for 15 minutes. And then you read this for five minutes. See, there's a lot of that stuff out there, and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, have a, have, just like reading your Bible, have a plan. He who aims at nothing invariably hits it. So have a plan. That's a good thing, right? Have some structure. That's okay. I'm not talking about those things. I'm just talking about some general things. Let me give you an example. First of all, make sure you're talking about private worship. Growing in the habit of private worship is Christ-centered. I almost put gospel-centered, but Christ-centered. Remember what Paul wrote, Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of what the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is about Christ. So whatever you're doing in your personal worship, if your personal worship is not acknowledging the merits of Christ and what he has done on our behalf, that the work of Christ where he atoned for my sin, where he satisfied the wrath of God because of his death and because of his blood, that I come into his gates with thanksgiving, that through him I have access, Ephesians chapter 2, 18. It must be saturated in Christ. And boy, that has a way of weeding out your 12 lists of things that you want from God when you spend time just thanking God for what he has done and given to us in the gospel of Christ. Jerry Bridges, who again is another writer, if you're not familiar with him, get acquainted with him. He's in heaven now. Uh, love all his stuff. But in his book called The Discipline of Grace, I never forgot this. He had a, a section there, and he, he talked about preaching regularly the gospel to yourself. Preaching the gospel to yourself. Not calling me and let me do it over the phone. No, preaching the gospel to yourself. 
That means as we gather to worship, I'm remembering the merits of Christ for myself. Let me give you an example of what he wrote. He says, to preach the gospel to yourself then means that you continually face up to your own sinfulness and then flee to Jesus through faith in his blood and righteous life. It means that you appropriate again by faith the fact that Jesus, Jesus alone, fully satisfied the law of God, that he is your propitiation, the satisfaction of sin, and that God's holy wrath is no longer directed towards you. That's the gospel. To preach the gospel to yourself means that you take a face value, the precious words of Romans 4, 7 through 8, blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Preach the gospel to yourself. It means that you believe on the testimony of God that therefore now there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. It means that you believe that Christ redeemed you from the curse of the law by becoming himself a curse for you, for it is written, everyone is cursed who is hung on a tree. It means that you believe that he forgave you of all your sins and now presents you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. It means being Christ-centered as we worship. We're worshiping what Christ has done for me. And you begin to do that. You're not going to be looking at your watch. You're not going to be worried whether you turn the dishwasher on or off or not. Or remember, call the insurance guy back. I mean, you're going to be so enraptured. Will it be like Revelation 4 and 5? No. But you know what? We can start tasting a little bit of the future if we will just apply ourselves and make sure, however you do your personal worship, that it is saturated in Christ Jesus. Notice also, delight in the Lord. Delight in the Lord. You know, John Piper's famous statement, God is most glorified God is most glorified in us. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. To delight in the Lord. We delight in God. We take joy in God. That means we turn our back on all the sounds and sirens of everything that's competing for our affections because our delight. Why do we obey? Why do we say no to sin? Why do we say no to temptation? All those things. It's because we're just, oh, well, you know, here's my list. I can't do this and I'm trying really hard. No, it's because I delight. Why am I faithful to my wife? Because I delight in her. How much more should I delight in God at a recipient of this amazing grace? Another encouragement I would give you, and this is just because of something I've tried to do and begun doing, is engage the Psalms. A lot of us are woefully ignorant of the value of the Psalms. You know I can't just leave that there, right? Uh, engage the Psalms. You realize the Psalms was the worship book of Jesus. You realize that the church, the Jews, the, the, our, our, our heritage, the Psalms is a built-in worship book. And there are so many, and on the website, if you haven't visited there, um, on the church website, there's a heading up there. It says, Holy Habits Resources. And I've been putting links and different things for each of these that we've covered, for the Bible, for prayer, for stewardship, for worship. And I have a bunch that I put up early this morning and last night relating to worship. And some of these relate to how to grow in utilizing the Psalms in our personal worship. On the back table, I made some copies. The link is on that that link there, if you uh, can't get it off the computer, I made some copies on the back table of an article called Eight Ways to Use the Psalms in Private Worship. Just practical stuff of how to take God's worship book, song book, and to use it. There's a link on there uh, about what is called the Psalter. You realize that, that history of, of those who have been before us uh, because there wasn't worship bands and all this stuff that we get caught up in, and it's all wonderful and good, and I'm thankful for it. But do you realize what they did when they gathered together? They literally sang the psalms. They sang the psalms. And I've got some links on there where they put those two tunes that are familiar. Like, now this shows you I'm about as far as my musical abilities. The common meter. Is Amazing Grace a common meter? Does anybody know? Does anybody care? All right. Um, 
And it means you can take the psalm and they've made it to such a, a cadence that you can take a familiar hymn and sing a psalm. What are we talking about? We're talking about private worship. We're not talking about going out and singing to a group of people. We're talking about worshiping and cultivating, worshiping the Lord. And, and there's, a, there's a quote that I came across last night um, somewhere to be on the screen. This, uh, and I thought this was so good. Why? Uh, and this is for the guy that wrote that uh, uh, copy of that article in the back, and it's online if you find it. He says, The Psalms are a unique treasure of Scripture that connect a believer's head and heart in a rich and vivid way. While most of Scripture delivers words from God to man, the Psalms provide man with spirit-inspired words to pray and sing to God. You'll never sing a psalm that you'll say, eh, you know, I don't know if that's correct. We've sung songs here, I, you know, said, let's not do that again. That didn't even make sense, what we just sang. Here, I'm going to tell you this. I say it all the time. If you can sing it in the Kiwanis Club and the Lions Club and, the, you know, the, the VFW Hall, and you can sing in church, it's probably not uniquely Christian worship. We misunderstand what is uniquely God-honoring Christian worship. And I'm thankful that we do, uh, you know, we do that. But you take the Psalms, there's a purity there. This is the Word of God that we, could, we can personally engage in. And this ties with the, the, the singing to the Lord. And there's some links on there of some great music. I talked about the Psalms. Some of you know who Shane and Shane is. Who many of you know them? They have a carpet cleaning business. No, Shane and Shane, great musicians, all right? They're very contemporary. They got two albums. Does that date me, albums? Uh, they got two albums. You can get on Spotify, iTunes, wherever. Not at the record store, in case some of you hadn't heard that. Just in music, put to literally the Psalms. So if you, you know, you take them, take a Psalm. As they sing and worship, you're engaged with the Psalms. Make use of that. And singing to the Lord. The Bible says, and this is my great verse, make a joyful noise to the Lord. I can make a joyful noise. Can you? Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Look at Psalm 96, verses 1 through 2. And these are just samples. Sing to the Lord a new song, kind of like the words of Revelation 4. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. We are to sing. Have any of you ever been into a Church of Christ congregation? Okay. Now, they have some doctrinal things I would dispute, okay, but consider them in the fold of generally evangelicals. They may not consider me, but, I, you know, we'll figure that out later. But I remember when I was in Arizona, there was a large Church of Christ congregation down the street from my mother, and one day I thought, you know, I remember being there, and I'm going to go down there. And this particular Church of Christ, not all of them are like this, but traditionally they do not have musical instruments. People sing a cappella, the congregation sings. Let me tell you something. I was really moved by that. To hear voices lifting up and singing with heart and passion without a guitar or drums or anything. What does that tell you? We don't need it. It's blessing. Read Psalm 150. It's in the Bible, all right? Okay? It's not, I'm not this anti-instrument. But I'm just saying we're talking about for worship. If you need to turn the lights out in a fog machine before you can encounter with God... Come on, get a grip. Get in the Psalms. Get engaged with God. You don't need any of that stuff. You can just get, get yourself with God and engage with him and sing. Lift your voice to the Lord. Sing to the Lord. And the last is, again, these are just principles. Give thanks. Give thanks. Psalm 95 verse 2 says, let us come into his presence with what? Thanksgiving. I always say, if you can't think of anything to give thankful for, and you're sitting in a nice house with carpet and a roof over your head, and you just had a sandwich, and you still can't think of anything to give God thanks for, and you're a believer, give him thanks that God saved you. Where would you be? Where would I be if God had not rescued me? Worship of God makes believers more godly because here it is, People become like what they focus on. Remember as little kids, remember as a kid, I, if I saw a movie, 
you know, if I saw Batman or whatever it was, what did I want to do? I want to go home and be Batman. I want to emulate Batman or whatever it was, you know. Um, you know, we, we, we want to be like our heroes that we focus on. And, you know, as we get a little older, it's sports stars and musicians. And, you know, we get older as adults. We want to emulate that business guy, that corporate guy, that this whatever. We become what we celebrate. And we're talking about growing in godliness. If we celebrate genuineness, worship to God, delighting in God and who he is, what is the promise? Is that we will grow in godliness. And so, to read it again, Romans 12, 1, Paul says, I appeal to you. I beg of you. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, your whole self, as a living sacrifice. Holy, only through Christ. Acceptable, only through Christ, to God, which is your spiritual worship. Let's pray. Father, how we fall short. Lord, in what we believe and what we engage with the one that we believe. Lord, help us and see that you desire relationship. You don't, re, you don't desire a new religious regiment, but you desire relationship. You stand at the door and knock. And your word says, if anyone will open that door, you'll come in, you'll sit, you'll eat, you'll have relationship. Lord, sometimes we maybe grew up where we connected worship with an overly formalized way of doing church. And there certainly is a place for awe and beauty and the grandeur of corporate worship. But Lord, when we get down to it, you just want us to spend time with you. And you delight. You, <laughs> we just talked about delighting in you, but yet your word says you've delighted in us. That you've chosen us before the foundation of the earth. You've delighted in us given us Christ how should that delight not be reciprocated in worth ship